you can feel free to grab from the box up there. We have plenty left, so make sure you get a copy of that. Let's pray. Father, we're glad yet again to come together as the church, come into the presence of our God, and to behold our God. What a wonderful privilege we have. Lord, we know that there is not a law that we have not broken. There is not a commandment that we have not violated. There is not a sin that is not deeply embedded in the core of our heart, and yet You have forgiven us of all our sins. You have washed us thoroughly from our iniquity. You have made us clean in Your sight by the blood and righteousness of Your Son, and for that we are eternally grateful. And we now long to spend the rest of eternity worshiping our Savior, the Lamb of God who is worthy to be praised, the One who with His blood has purchased a people from among men to be a people for His own possession. And we are the fruit of your, your Son's labor, a group of people redeemed, called out of the world, gathered together as the church to worship our God. And Lord, our heart mourns because we know that there are people who do not worship You as You ought to be worshipped. And we want to see Christ's kingdom advance. We want to see His reign and rule conquer the hearts of men and women. And we want Christ to be glorified. So we pray that that would be the case. And now as we study... Uh, the 1689 Confession this morning, and as we consider uh, the great historical doctrinal truths upon which our faith is founded, and as we seek to utilize this confession only as a means to bring us face to face with the Scripture, we pray that you would give us greater clarity as to what your Word teaches, and that our love for Christ would grow ever greater, our affections would be stirred, and our lives would be conformed to His image. To which end we pray. Amen. Alright, if you have your copy of the Confession, and if you do not, please get you one. If you do, turn with me to page, I believe we're on page four, page 12. Page No, we're on page 11. Page 11. That's right, we got through the first line of the first paragraph last week, so making some real progress here. So chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures. <clears throat> last week I uh, kind of introduced the Confession by talking about why the Confession's important, uh, why doctrine's important. Also throughout a few uh, caveats that uh, this is not the Word of God, right? The 1689 Confession is not inspired by God. It is not the Word of God. It's subject to error, unlike the Scripture. Uh, but we do believe as a church that this is the best written, man-written expression of biblical truth. And so, this is our official doctrinal statement as a church. Uh, there are elements of the Confession I disagree with. Uh, for instance, I do not believe that the Pope is the Antichrist. Our confession says he is. I believe the Pope is an Antichrist, but not the Antichrist. So a little uh, nuance there that I disagree with. But uh, the confession, I believe, is a wonderful means to grow in our understanding of what the Bible teaches. It serves as guardrails that keep us within the realm of orthodoxy, and it helps ground us and root us in biblical truth. So... Uh, we started with paragraph 1 last time. I'm going to read that paragraph again, and then we'll just work our way line by line through it. So chapter 1, paragraph 1 of the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways 
to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church. To preserve and propagate the truth better, and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan in the world, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely, absolutely necessary because God's former ways of revealing His will to His people have now ceased. So the confession begins with a chapter on the Bible. Why do you think it begins there? Why does the confession begin with the Holy Scriptures? Because it's the Word of God. It's the Word of God, right? It's the foundation, right? Everything we believe about God, everything we believe about man, everything we believe about sin, about salvation, about the Gospel, is going to be found in the Bible. So it's important that we begin by establishing uh, the authority, the inspiration, and the sufficiency of the Bible. And that's where the confession begins. So last week we looked at that first statement, that the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. That is to say, the Bible and the Bible alone contains all that you need to know to be saved and sanctified and do the will of God. Right Now the Bible... It's not all you need in life. You need, if you're, if you're going to get a job, you need skills, you need to learn math, you need to learn language. That's why we do common core subjects in school. You need to learn those things. The Bible doesn't teach you exhaustively about science and math, but the Bible teaches you everything you need to know to be a Christian and to live in a way that pleases God and to do His will. So the Bible then is sufficient. But now let's read this second line. <clears throat> The second uh, line there says, The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. What does the confession mean by that? Let me read it one more time. The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. What does that mean? That's right. Like Romans 1, everyone knows. Everyone already knows God. Is there, any, is there a such thing as an atheist? Atheists do not exist. There are people who say they are atheists, but in their heart of hearts, they know God. There's no such thing as an atheist. So when people tell you they're atheists, you really want to get in a good conversation with them, tell them, sir, I don't believe in atheists. I do that all the time. They're walking by and they'll say, I'm an atheist. I say, sir, there's no such thing as atheists. And that usually brings us back. So it's a good way to get a conversation going. They also spend a lot of time painting and trying to disprove something that they supposedly don't believe exists. That's right. The atheist knows two things, right? There is no God, and I hate Him, right? <laughs> they don't hate Santa Claus. That's right. They don't hate mythical creatures, they hate the gods that they already know. So he says that the confession says the light of nature, what, it, what can be seen around you in nature, the works of creation and providence, providence is God's sustaining of the universe, so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. How does creation reveal the attributes of God? How do we see the goodness of God in creation? When it rains, it's merciful. Amen. God is good and merciful to give us rain from heaven, isn't it? We don't really, we, we don't need that. No, we got we got grocery stores, right? 
Yeah, where do we, <laughs> but where do we get those substances from? So God is gracious. He gives us what we need to eat and to drink, right? How else can we see the goodness of God in creation? We can walk and talk and think and enjoy things. There are probably times in your life, I know some of us are miserable a lot, but there are times where we enjoy our lives, right? When we're, ha- when we're off on a Saturday and we go out to dinner and taste a good steak, for me it's chicken or hamburger, and we bite into some good food, we, we are thankful. That's a moment of enjoyment, and that's a gift from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from God, James says. Uh, we have a sense of justice, don't we? If you don't believe that, just look on the internet. People crying out for you know people what lives matter and social justice, and they have a distorted view of justice, but they have a they have a concept of justice and morality. Where do they get that from? Their Creator, right? Their Creator. How do we see the wisdom of God in nature? Is our universe is it uh, does it have the marks of intelligent design, or does it look more like an accident? Intelligent design, right? I mean, come on. You don't get a supercomputer by an explosion in a factory. Chaos doesn't create harmony. You get a supercomputer because people with intelligent minds work to develop the computer. And you don't get human minds by an explosion and millions of years of evolution. You get intelligent minds by divine creation, right? Not only that, but if the Earth was any closer to the sun, we'd burn out. But if we were right. any farther away from the sun, we would freeze to death. So right. there's wisdom in yeah. where he placed the planet. Yeah, perfectly aligned. I mean, everything. If it was off by, you know, just a hair, the whole universe or the whole earth would go haywire. It would be impossible for there to be life. So God has intelligently, and in his infinite wisdom, he's intelligently designed the universe so intricately detailed that life is possible. It's not an accident. It's the wisdom of God. And then, of course, the power of God. It takes omnipotent power to make a universe and sustain it, and therefore God's omnipotence is demonstrated. Let's look at some of the verses that are... Actually, let me read this last, last statement, and then we'll look at some verses. However, these demonstrations through creation and providence are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. So can can the man on the other side of the world who's never heard of the Christian religion know that God exists? He does know God exists. But can he know enough to be saved without the Gospel? No. No. God's general revelation, we're talking about the difference now between general revelation and special revelation. or, Or natural revelation and divine revelation. A general revelation refers to what God has revealed in general, to all people through creation, divine revelation is God's revelation specifically for us in the Bible. We call it inscripturated revelation. And a general revelation reveals enough for the sinner to be damned without excuse. He knows God, he knows the law of God, but he cannot understand the gospel of God without the Bible, without divine inscripturated revelation. So let's look at some of these verses. Turn to... uh, Romans chapter 1. Sean's stolen some of the thunder already, but that's fine. <laughs> Romans chapter 1. I'd apologize, but I'd be lying. <laughs> <laughs> Romans 1. This is, to me, this is the most 
important book of the New Testament for you to master. If you master the book of Romans, the entirety of Christian theology is essentially right here for you. Romans 1. And in the first few chapters, Paul gives us a biblical anthropology, a biblical view of man. And starting in verse 18, Romans 1 verse 18, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And now notice the the tense of that. It's not that the wrath of God will be revealed from heaven. Or was. uh, Or was. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What tense is that? Present. So the wrath of God is currently, right now, being revealed from heaven. How is the wrath of God revealed from heaven? How do we see expressions of God's wrath even today? Volcanic explosions. Natural disasters, right? We could call that God's cataclysmic wrath. There are natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, disease, etc. So there's cataclysmic wrath. COVID. COVID would definitely fall. There you go. I mean, in a general sense, any sickness, any disease is an expression of judgment upon a fallen creation. That doesn't mean everyone who dies from that disease is specifically being condemned. It just means that we live in a sinful world that God has pronounced a curse upon it. And if you can't look around and figure out that God's judging the world, then you're missing it. You must be closing your eyes. There's diseases and hurricanes and so on. What are some other expressions of God's wrath? Unjust rulers over wicked nations. Unjust rulers. Calvin says when God judges a nation, He gives them wicked rulers. And I say you must be judging every nation then because... I don't know of a nation that has good rulers, specifically America. So wicked rulers, that's an expression of judgment. What else? What are some other expressions of God's judgment? So we have cataclysmic wrath. What happens when you engage in, in drugs and alcohol and immorality? What are some things that happen? You do bad. You, you do bad, yeah. that's true. Addiction. So addiction, you get addicted, okay. Yeah, <laughs> You got your interpreter here. Lives are destroyed. You end up in jail or prison. Lives are destroyed. Families are broken. So what? What is? What? What can we say about that? What a man sows, he also reaps. Right? The wrath of sowing and reaping, or you could say God's consequential wrath. There are consequences for your actions. Right? If you engage in immorality, you might end up with a disease. If you engage in drunkenness, you might end up with a liver problem. Uh, if you engage uh, in, in uh, drugs, you might end up losing your your brain, right? We know some people like that, don't we? So there is a sense in which you reap what you sow, God's wrath. Of course, pagans call this karma. We call this the wrath of God. That's what it is. It's God's judgment. But Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. But now the question is this, is God's wrath just? Yes. It is just. Why? Why is it just? Because He's perfect and holy and we are not. Because He's perfect and holy and we are not. But how come God can just judge all the people of the world? Because He created all of us for His creation. Yeah, but aren't there people... What about the the Indian man on the other side of the jungle who's a good person and he's never heard of the Christian religion and he tries his best? There are no good people. There are no good people, right? There are no good people in India or America or Africa or China or all the other continents. There's no good people in the world at all. All are sinful. All despise God by nature. And therefore, all are justly under the wrath of God. 
You might say man rates, rates people on a curve. That's what people God think. Doesn't. Yeah, that's 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 the idea, right? God grades on a curve, but God God grades, God judges according to His perfect standard of righteousness. And notice it says that this wrath is upon ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The very end of verse eighteen, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If they didn't know the truth, perhaps they would have an excuse. But they do know the truth, and therefore they are without excuse. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So, who, when an atheist says, give me evidence for God's existence, what, what is the way we can respond? The breath you just spoke with. Right. I don't need to give you evidence. God's already done it. God's already made His existence clear to you. It's not an evidence problem. It's a heart problem. It's not an intellectual problem. It's a spiritual problem. It's a sin problem. People... Love sin. And God's not on trial, you are. That's right. You're the one on trial, right? So it's important for us to note here that the atheist is like a thief who can't find a cop. He can't find God because he's guilty and he doesn't want to be found. He's hiding like Adam in the garden. It's not God hiding. It's not God that can't be found. It's the sinner hiding. So God has made it evident to them. How has God made His existence evident to all men? Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, sounds just like what the confession said, right? Have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. Notice that play on words. God's invisible attributes have been clearly seen. Hmm. If something's invisible, what does that mean? You can't see it. But God's invisible perfections, characteristics, are seen visibly through the creation. Man knows God through the creation. So that, in the end of verse 20, they are without excuse. Unapologetus. They have no defense before the throne of God. They are guilty. They know God. They have no excuse. And then notice the statement verse 21 makes. Very profound statement here. For even though they knew God, does the atheist know God? Yep. Yes. The atheist knows God. Notice it doesn't say even though they knew a God. They knew a higher power. Now they knew God. They knew the true God. They were created in His image. They live in His world. And the only worldview that makes sense in God's world is the worldview of God's Word. To live in God's creation, to be made in His image, to have His law in the heart, is to know our Creator. If you are self-conscious, you are God-conscious. All men have the, the light of, of divine revela- of, of uh, general revelation in their hearts and all around them. They are without excuse. So they knew God. They didn't honor Him as God. They didn't give thanks. They became futile. Verse 22, this is our culture right here, isn't it? Professing to be wise, they became fools. I mean, this is a commentary on America. Absolutely. And then they exchanged the glory of God. And Paul goes on and talks about how God gives them up to a depraved mind. That's God's... Uh, wrath of abandonment. You want sin, you reject God. God rejects you, hands you over to your depravity, and you end up with a thousand genders, and you deny God on a scientific basis, and you can't even figure out how to make science work because you have abandoned the source of all knowledge. You end up with utter foolishness. So that's God's wrath of abandonment. All men know God through general revelation. Uh, there are another, there's another verse here, another verse here to look at. Uh, Romans chapter 2 now. Romans chapter 2, 
And uh, for the sake of context, I'm going to start in verse. I'm going to start in verse 11. Paul's talking about judgment, God's standard of judgment. In verse 11, he says this: "For there is no partiality with God." That is to say, God's going to judge everybody by the same standard. God's not going to judge you by one standard and your spouse by another. He's not going to judge the Jew by one standard and the Gentile by another standard. He's going to judge us all by the same standard. What's the standard? Perfection. Perfection, which is summarized in God's law, right? He's going to judge us by the perfect standard of His law. Verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Who is it that sinned without the law? Who has sinned without the law? Verse 12, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Who's that? Gentiles, right? If we just keep reading, we'll find it. Watch. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Who's that? Who sinned under the law? The Jews. They had the law in divine revelation. They had the law written on tablets of stone. They had the law inscripturated for them. But the Gentiles who lived in the pagan nations, they didn't have the Old Testament, did they? They didn't have the Bible. So they sinned without the law. The Jews sinned under the law, but they're both going to perish. Verse 13, For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law... There's the answer, right? Gentiles, pagans in other nations in Paul's day didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have Scripture. But did they still sin? Were they still guilty? Were they still held accountable? How can God hold them accountable if they didn't have the law? They did have the law. Not in external codified form, but internally they had it written on their hearts and their consciences bore witness. So verse 14, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, in other words, even pagans have a sense of morality. Even pagans, some pagans will refrain from stealing. And even pagan societies can create laws that some of them are just. They'll punish murderers or they'll punish thieves. How do they get that? The law of God is in their hearts. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, verse 15, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So from Romans 1 and 2, we learn two things about man. Does man know God exists? Yep. Does man know the moral law of God? Yep. So is man guilty? Yep. Does man have an excuse? Nope. No. No, it doesn't matter where he's at. Africa, the jungle, America, uh, Syracuse, a civilized society. Not Syracuse, but a civilized society. doesn't matter where he's at. He's guilty and he has no excuse. So next time someone says, what about the person, the good man on the other side of the jungle, you say what Sean said. There's no good person. They've broken the law. They know God. They hate Him like all of us, naturally. They deserve judgment. There's one answer, one hope, one solution, and what is that? What is the solution for sin? The Gospel. The Gospel. That's it. They need the Gospel. 
By the way, if people who die without hearing the gospel can be saved because they haven't heard the gospel, the worst thing you can do, you know what the worst thing you can do for them is? If someone can be saved without hearing the gospel, if they're automatically saved because they don't know the gospel, what's the worst thing you can do for them? The worst thing you can do is take them the gospel. Because then they might reject it and then they go to hell. And if you would have just stayed home on your couch, they would have died in ignorance and went to heaven according to that perspective. But in reality, if they die without the gospel, they go to hell. And that's why this mission is so urgent and necessary. We have to take the gospel to the nations. So that's Romans 1 and 2. Now go to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. See, you said I never teach through the Old Testament. That's not true, right? Psalm 19. Starting in verse 1. Psalm 19 is a glorious passage. I told you that there are primary two forms or categories of revelation. There are two categories of revelation. Can anyone remember what they are? Divine revelation? Divine revelation and general or natural revelation. Okay? So there's natural revelation. That's God's revelation through two ways. Creation and conscience. Okay? Natural revelation, creation and conscience. All men know God and His law through creation and conscience. Then there's divine revelation, which for us is a reference to the Bible. It's God's direct voice, God's direct word inscripturated in the Bible. Psalm 19 actually touches on both forms of revelation. But starting in verse 1, we see general revelation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. So, so listen to what he says again. The heavens are telling of the what? The glory of God. You look, what is the glory of God? What is the glory of God? We use that terminology often, but do we know what it is? What is God's glory? That's a big one, isn't it? He's sinless. He's sinless. So it's who God is, right? The glory of God, there's two aspects to God's glory. There's what we call His intrinsic glory, and then His ascribed glory. His intrinsic glory is that which is true of God. It's the fullness of God's perfection. And then the ascribed glory is the glory we give to God, is praise. So here in Psalm 19, the psalmist is saying the intrinsic glory of God, the perfections of God, the attributes of God are spoken of in creation. So the heavens tell the glory of God. Their expanse, that's the sky, the heavens, declare the work of His hands. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Yet there is no speech. There are, there are no words. It's not literal verbal speech. It's creation as an evidence for the existence of God so that all men are without excuse. So that's Psalm 19. That's general revelation. So back to the confession now. So the confession says, "...the light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God 
that people are left without excuse. So, do we believe that? Yeah, we just, the Scripture establishes that. But then it says, however, these demonstrations are not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and His will that is necessary for salvation. In other words, creation and conscience reveals God, people know God, but it doesn't reveal enough for them to be saved. For them to be saved, what do they need? The Gospel. Okay? Uh, if you want a few passages that affirm that, you can write these down. Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, The Gospel is the power of God for salvation. So what's the power of God for salvation? The Gospel. Not creation, not general revelation. The Gospel. In Romans 10.17, Paul says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. If if you're going to be saved, you have to have faith in Jesus. And how do you get faith in Jesus? Hear the Gospel. Right? You hear the Gospel. One more passage, 1 Corinthians 1, I think it's 21. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21. says that God is well pleased to save sinners through the foolishness of the message preached. So how does God save? Through the Word, the Gospel being preached. So can sinners be saved because they know of God in creation? No. Can they be saved through general revelation? No. They must have divine revelation. They must have the Gospel. That brings us to the next statement in the confession. Any thoughts, comments, or questions so far? Everybody with me? These are some lofty ideas. We're going really deep in the Word of God, and we're only about two statements in so far. But we have ten minutes left, so we might make it into a third statement. Alright, let's look at the third statement here. Therefore, therefore, if you're a good grammatician, did I use that word right? Yes. If you're good at grammar, and you're good at you know, syntax and language and, and writing, why? what does the word therefore mean? makes you go back and read the statement before so that you see what that therefore is therefore. That's right. When you see the word therefore, you look back to see why it's therefore. Right? It's a conjunction links something else to something else. So therefore, going back to what he said, that for you to be saved, you need God's will revealed apart from creation. You need more revelation than creation. Therefore, the Lord was pleased at different times and in various ways to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church. In other words, God has revealed Himself through divine revelation in different ways. What are some of the ways that God has revealed Himself throughout the history of the world? What are some of the ways that God... In the Old Testament, how did God reveal Himself in the Old Testament? Dreams and visions. Dreams and visions. Okay, what else? The burning bush. The burning bush. I mean, here's Moses walking along, and all of a sudden the bush sets on fire and starts talking to him, right? And he wasn't even drunk. He was actually sober. So what, what are some other ways? Dreams, visions, the burning bush? When he held the sun. God caused the sun to stand still, and we know that's phenomenological language. We know that really means the earth stood still. So God revealed Himself through signs in the heavens. He revealed Himself through dreams. And all of that revelation comes to us in what form? All of those dreams and prophecies and visions and direct words from God, how do they come to us now? The Bible, right? The Bible. So God revealed Himself in many ways. 
The next statement, this is right after little footnote 3, says to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and the world, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. So the confession says, here's the reason why God has given us the Bible. Because, first of all, we need divine revelation. But secondly, because if divine revelation was only passed on orally, what might happen? If we didn't have written revelation and all of God's revelation was just passed on verbally, we just told other people about it, and it was passed on in stories, what might happen with revelation? Get lost and distorted. Get lost, right? Be corrupted. We've all heard the telephone game analogy, right? You say something, the next person hears it, says, says, tries to reiterate it, but eventually it gets changed, and by the time you get to the end of the line and gets back to the beginning, it's been totally changed. That might have happened if, if the people of God were entrusted with revelation only verbally. Maybe it would have been twisted, but God has given us the revelation in Scripture. And so He does it to preserve and propagate or spread the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh. The corruption of the flesh. If, if the if revelation was completely up to man, sinful men might corrupt it. And we know that, right? Not like they would. They would. Because they try already, don't they? Has anybody ever heard of the New World Translation? Yes. It's the Jehovah's Witness Bible. It's a perversion, right? If, if men were entrusted with verbal revelation, we probably would have no revelation left. So against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan. Who wants to destroy the revelation of God more than anyone? Satan. The devil. And then he says, and of the world. That's our threefold enemy, the flesh, Satan, and the world. And those three enemies want to destroy God's truth. So God preserved it for us in the Bible. Because of that, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing. Therefore, the Holy Scriptures are absolutely necessary. The Holy Scripture is absolutely necessary. Why is the Scripture absolutely necessary? So it can get to us. Because we need divine revelation for salvation, and we need God's Word to be preserved. So the divine revelation of Scripture is absolutely necessary. And then at the very end of paragraph 1, it says this, Because God's former ways of revealing His will to His people have now ceased. God's former ways of revealing His will to His people have now ceased. What do you think the confession means by that? There's no more dreams. There's no more... um visions. Right. God's no longer revealing things the way He did. His revelation is complete in His Son. And we read that revelation about His Son in the New Testament and in the Bible. The Bible is complete. We no longer need divine direct revelation. How do we, how do we know? If you, if you lived in the time of Moses, how did you know that Moses was really a spokesman for God? I mean, here he is claiming that he's hearing from God. How do you know? How did the Israelites know? What are some things Moses might have done that validated his authority to speak for God? What did he do in Egypt with his staff? He dropped his 
snake. Turned into a snake. That's pretty convincing. <laughs> you can do that. I'll probably give you some some time to. I'll give you some time to listen to you. What else did he do? What happened when he went on Mount Sinai? His face is shining. Where did you get that, Moses? He was in the presence of God. The people themselves even heard the voice of God rumbling from the mountain. They wanted to get away. So there was divine authentication for Moses' right to speak for God. Same thing with all the prophets. Elijah raises dead people. Elisha, same thing. You get to the New Testament. How do you know the apostles have the right to speak for God? Signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. They're doing miracles. They're healing sick people, raising dead people. Those signs weren't meant forever. Those signs were meant to authenticate divine revelation. That's why there aren't people doing miracles today. Because the miracles have ceased. Does God still do miracles? Yes, God heals people all the time, right? We we know of people who had cancer or they don't have cancer anymore. Somebody go tell that to Bethel Rudding Church and uh, uh, what the heck is his name? Um, Benny Hen. Now you're talking about Bill Johnson? Yes. <coughs> By the way. Huh? Who wears that? Yeah, never. Are you going to be a hate? And then there's a picture of him with a broken finger and yeah. he's got it in a cap. Well, if you're a faith healer, why can't yeah. you heal yourself? Never trust a faith healer with a broken finger and glasses. <laughs> So there's a reason why you don't see these things. These things were not normal in church history. Miracles, it's not like they happened all the time. In fact, there's only really a few periods in history when miracles took place. Three periods. The first one was in the time of Moses for about 40 years to authenticate his revelation. The second time was in the time of Elijah and Elisha for about 40 years to authenticate their revelation. The third time was in the time of the apostles for about 40 to 60 years to authenticate their revelation. That's it. Miracles have passed off. Why? Because Scripture's finished. Scripture's finished. Turn to uh, Acts chapter 2. We're almost done here. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. When we read the book of Acts, we don't find everybody doing miracles. There are actually whole movements that are so caught up with these wonders and miracles that they'll say you're not even a Christian if you can't do them. It's very dangerous to the church. Go to chapter 2, verse 43. Acts 2, verse 43. This is right after the church gets its start in the New Covenant. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Was everybody doing miracles? No. No, the apostles. Why were they doing miracles? They were messengers of God to authenticate the truth, right? And then we don't find anyone else doing miracles until we get to Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, the seven men are chosen to be deacons, basically. So you're not a cool deacon, Keith, if you can't do miracles. The seven men are chosen to be deacons. I think our deacon does work miracles. but he had, Surprisingly, he had COVID and now he's healed. Right? <laughs> Acts chapter 6. The seven men are chosen. The apostles ordained these men. They now become close associates of the apostles. And now all of a sudden in verse... Verse... Maybe it's not Stephen. Oh yeah, verse 8. Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. He's one of the seven men that were chosen 
by the church and ordained by the apostles. So you have the apostles and their close associates doing miracles. The purpose of those miracles is to authenticate divine revelation. That was the purpose. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were accomplished among you. Signs of a true apostle were accomplished among you. Paul did miracles. Paul says, you don't listen to the heretics. I'm the true spokesman from God. Here's the proof. I did miracles. You saw them. That was the purpose. So since the Scripture is complete, the canon is closed, and we'll talk more about what the word canon means next week. But since the Bible is complete, we do not need any more miracles and signs. The Word of God has already been authenticated. We have all we need in the Scripture. And therefore, the Word of God is absolutely necessary because the only way God now reveals Himself salvifically is in the Bible. In the Bible. Any thoughts, comments, or questions on any of that? Is that a lot to take in? We got through one paragraph. How about that? We might be through in three years. So do we need the Bible? Yep. Why do we need the Bible? It's the Word of God. And we can go to heaven. We can't be saved without it. We have to have the Bible. It's absolutely necessary. And that's why as a church, we don't trifle with the Scripture. We dig into the Scripture. We love the Scripture because it is the Word of God to us. Can I have that? Stop things Thank you. With that, we'll close in prayer. That was God's way of saying, shut up, Jay. Let's go. Father in heaven, we're thankful that you've given us a complete, sufficient, authoritative word from heaven, authenticated by the apostles, their associates, and their miracles. And now we have all we need in the sufficient, authoritative Scripture. Help us to love it. People have given their lives to make sure it's stood today and been preserved today. People have been burnt at the stake for translating it into our languages. Lord, oh, we owe it to these men and we owe it to Your glory to be diligent students of the Scriptures that You might be praised in all we say, think, and do. May Your Word govern our thoughts, govern our worship, and govern our lives for Your glory. Amen.